everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Today's guest is David Cotterell an ex-professional football player who has played for clubs like Wigan Athletic, Birmingham City and Swansea, as well as playing internationally for Wales. He was actually the youngest player to do so at the time when he did. David is now a mental health consultant, a public speaker and helps run the Crystal Matrix, a company that offer mental health support to all ages. In this episode, we hear about David's battle with self-harm and alcohol what it's like to experience poor mental health as a professional football player, and how David is doing now. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Maya Minds podcast. Today, I'm here with David. David, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I was just saying to you before we started, I'm a bit nervous because you're kind of the probably the highest caliber guest I've had so far. So my heart's pumping a little bit, but you know, well, I'll push on, I'll push on. I'm sorry for everyone who's listening who can hear my kind of nervousness <laughs> in my voice. Um, so you'll, you'll, everyone listening, you'll have heard um, about David and the introduction. Um, just to start off, David, could you, I know obviously you're very open about your personal experiences online and with your public speaking and things like that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your own personal mental health story? Um, yeah, I think it probably goes back to my childhood where, where... Uh, you know, from a young age, even at the age of six, I was always kind of pushed, pushed, I would say, at that age to be kind of perfect. So I was always searching to be, the, you know, perfect. And as we know, when we get older, it's impossible. No one is perfect. So I mm. um, probably stemmed from then where I was like, you know, six, between six to ten, I was playing football locally. And then I got picked up professionally when I was ten. And then pretty much from the age of ten, it was, you know, the pressure was on a little bit more because I was fighting for professional, for contracts at a professional club. Um and I was just always, oh, if I make mistakes, my dad would be on my case constantly about after games. And uh, as a young age, you know, you, you don't know what to say because no one walks out the front door and think, right, I'm going to, you know, mess up today or I'm going to be a pain in the backside and make mistakes, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it happens. And there's, sometimes there's no explanation for it. You go out to try your best, it just doesn't work. Um, so then at the age of, you know, 12, 13, um, you know, I'd self-harm. I'd, I'd whack studs against my shins because I used to just think, well, I'm training three or four times a week and games and I have school activities as well as in PE. So I just thought I'd get away with it. Um, so I just do that out of anger, just trying to search again for that perfection to try and be better. So that obviously is quite a, um, being a young age and having that pressure put onto you when you get picked up from like a professional club and, all of a sudden you're expected to be it's almost like you're like you're separate from the rest of the people you know is that kind of how it felt like did you feel like there was that extra pressure just because you were different like you were it's like you were different wasn't it it set you apart yeah I think you know what when a lot of people say um I I, certainly in my circumstances really where you know a lot of people would look on the outside thinking oh you always thought you were above us you always thought a certain way blah 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 and then when they realized I was going through mental health problems they then could relate as mm. such but if I didn't probably speak about it, they might not been able to relate because it was um thought um I was a certain kind of person but I think um probably 
you know when you when you're actually taken away from your childhood as in like you're not allowed to go out with your friends you yeah. you have to follow a follow a certain program because you're a professional club it kind of takes you away from your friends and, and family and things anyway so you kind mm-hmm. of feel i wouldn't say pretty much you feel quite isolated um and you have to be really really mentally strong as in like really focused on what you want to do so for me that was not the issue i always felt i was i was mentally um strong is in the fact that i knew what i wanted um mm. i knew i wanted to be a professional footballer it's just all the other bullshit that come around with it you know a bit of kind of like with my dad's background where he's pushing me into something and um it's kind of like i was following his dream and not my own and it's important i think for the that us as individuals we need to follow our own dreams and not just our parents because i always had the mindset well you had your chance if you want to be a footballer you should have done it yourself and not pushed yeah. on to me <laughs> um it's quite strange he was my biggest critic but my biggest fan as well because if I needed to be somewhere he'd make sure I was there on time and blah Mm. blah but one is you know very very critical and I know to be at an elite level you need to have that push but it's just like it does eventually catch up with you and it just drains and all other things kind of kicked into place later on in my personal life anyway that Mm. eventually got me on to drinking a lot <laughs> yeah yeah I, I want to touch on that um kind of as we go on but talking talking a bit about your your dad how has that relationship morphed since then like do, you know like did you you know from obviously from like a young age it must have been like i have i have kind of poor experience with my own dad when i was growing up he was an alcoholic and you know so i had kind of difficulties in regards to that and then growing up it's kind of morphed into you know we're, we're quite close now and you know there's still ups and downs and a bit of confusion there but how was that with you like growing especially becoming like a professional football player and being successful like because that was almost what he wanted you to do anyway like how did that feel yeah no it was, it was like like i say if this is why it's quite, when I tell obviously my background and my story and, and things like that, it's kind of, you know, my dad is my biggest fan, well, my parents are my biggest fans. And, um, you know, if I needed some, I'd still, I'd ring my dad or, or anything mm-hmm. that we are close. Um, it's just kind of, football always be, has always been his number one thing, mm-hmm. like no matter what. So when I was going through a divorce, it'd be kind of like, well, how's football going? It wouldn't be like, well, how are you feeling without not seeing your children as such? So it's kind of, so those kind of like things going back and forth were a pain in the backside. Um, my dad also is, is an alcoholic. He's a functional alcoholic. He can literally mm-hmm. drink and still be up at 6am ready to rock and roll to go for work. So he, that's just the way it was. And I think a lot of the older generation, they used to just crack on and just get on with it. A lot, a lot of people just go to the pub and would come home for like three, four days missing. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It, it's yeah. just the way it was. But um, yeah, he's, he's also the same as, as what you mentioned about your dad. Mm-hmm. And, I think as soon as I made as a footballer, I felt like so happy just to turn around and say, well, no, I'm actually a professional footballer now. You don't, I don't need to listen to you anymore. And I got a lot of like satisfaction off saying that. Mm. And really it should be like a really, really proud moment. But because, you know, I played a few games in the first team and then he'd like ask me a few questions. Like, well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And I'm like, well, well, you didn't make it a pro i now have so i'll listen to my manager <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of what i was think what i was alluding to when i was asking about it because I, I i feel like i would have it would have would have been a bit of like a oh fuck you moment like yeah. <laughs> because like i've made it now so like i know i'm the boss now <laughs> it's like that um it, that meme that i'm the captain now <laughs> yeah like um i was I, honestly i couldn't wait just to say do you know what i've made it and you didn't and that was it so but it shouldn't have been that way because no. mm. if you're if you're following like a dad's dream and, and they're pushing you and they've done all the the 
the grafters as in like they've taken you everywhere they've spent shitloads of money on like to get you to places and put a lot of time and effort into you emotionally and and everything it's kind of like you shouldn't have that it's kind of right well fuck you kind of thing mm. i've made it it was like it wasn't that as such i know they were very very proud and it was just kind of just like you know i, I couldn't wait just to say well I was just fed up with him having a go at me, to be quite honest, about football. Yeah. It was just, it was fucking mentally, it was mentally draining. Like, I mean, when you're 10 years of age and you just played Chelsea's academy and you're driving from London to Cardiff, the last thing you need is someone in your ear when you've just lost the game for four hours. And that's literally what I'd get. And, and mm. you know, there'd be times where you, if I had a bad game and, and things like that, I, I, he wouldn't speak to me for like two days at a time. <laughs> and mm. I'd be like 10. <laughs> so it yeah. is like, it is tough. Yeah, that, well, that, yeah, it sounds kind of, incredibly difficult and i imagine you know the pressure of football in general and then you know having the pressure of your dad i'm interested in you know when you when you got older and you were playing kind of on the big stage and playing in the big stadiums you know against teams and how do you think that affected your ability to deal with the fan and the media pressure or did did it or did it not um I think this, the social media side of things of, of where people have been allowed to troll others uh, has always not been acceptable and it's and it's still to this day that um nothing's really been done as it let's be honest like in the last mm. five to ten years there's not much been done on say twitter for example where people can just go on there and say what they want yeah um so from that point of view i think i tried to keep away from it but you're naturally going to go on social media after games and you'd go on there and you'd have like abuse if you've had a bad game and blah blah, blah. but in the stadium i didn't really I didn't really used to let the fans probably affect my performance that much, to be quite honest. I didn't, I was quite good at being able to block things out. When I was on the mm. pitch, I was just purely focused on what we were, I was going to do as an individual and what we we're going to do as a team. So if I was going to take a, a corner and someone's called me a bald wanker or whatever, I used to love all that shit. <laughs> I used to just think if I'm going to score a goal, I'm coming straight over to you. So I kind of used that as like a motivation to then hopefully my team wins. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's really, it's a good point to make that, you know, even when you were playing at the professional stage, you were still, you know, even, even the professional football players have those tendencies to check, you know, what people think about them. Yeah. I think like you were saying earlier, people tend to see kind of professional players as like, they feel that they're above other people and they don't, don't go, don't give a shit about what people are saying, but you know, and I think that's what gives people the, the sense of grandiosity that they can give a football player shit is because they think that, Oh, they won't give, they won't care anyway, but you, you are a human being like you are going to, if someone calls you a knobhead, like on, and loads of people are doing it, you're going to start to think, Oh, maybe I'm a knobhead. Like maybe I need to change or, you know, and you're going to start questioning yourself. Yeah. I think, well, the thing is being involved in like the, the football environment, it's literally impossible to get away from because anywhere you would go, the first, they ultimately want to talk about football straight away. You know, even on when I used to have nights out, you get people come up to you, but they want to have a talk about football. Part of you thinks, well, I'm out with my friends. You know, mm. I want to be able to crack on and have a good time. Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, you speak and, and be polite and so on and, and blah, blah, blah. But I think, you know, even if you go into like, when I used to go and play snooker or something like that with my dad in the local pub, I'd like go down there and, and you you literally would have people come up to you and be like, oh, well, how did you play the other day? Because the newspapers give you like a six out of 10 or whatever. So it's literally everywhere. So you mm. can't even get away from it. It is what it is. And I was quite good at like 
blocking that kind of thing out. The reason why I struggled later on was just because probably my childhood in terms of like all that pressure, I went through a divorce. Um, I put myself on the biggest pressure of all. Then I, then I started hitting drink and ultimately the reason why I didn't retire, I just mentally was not in a good place. I didn't, and I wasn't enjoying football. I lost mm. my love for football at the end of um, my career. And I was just fed up with that bullshit. I was fed up with the bullshit politics involved in football and I was done. Mm. So when when did the actual um, like drinking start? Can you remember when you started? Like when when did it go from just drinking to it being like a dependency for you? Um, I think do you know what? When I always used to go out quite young, I used to always I'd go out and I wasn't really into much of like drinking. To be quite honest, I just liked to go out and I was in a relationship, had children very young. I had a divorce when I was 24, 25, and that's when kind of like I started to go out a lot, even actually before that, I was drinking a lot more. Um, and then as soon as I broke up, I was just going out more and more and more and more. Mm. I just felt like, and more I was doing, I just felt like indestructible. I just felt untouchable, felt like I could do what the fuck I wanted when I wanted to. And it just ultimately you can't, um, it, it always catches up with you in the end. And that's where I was. I was, yeah, I was I was drinking on a regular basis. It was getting especially towards the back end of my career. I couldn't wait to finish training and to then go to the local pub or shoot home and go and drink. And, you know, I was drinking three or four bottles of red wine a night, then going into training the next day and, and blah blah blah. So So did did that affect your kind of performance in football? Or like did people pick up on it? Like did your teammates pick up on it? Like how how did that all kind of intertwine with your football career? Do you know what a lot of people used to say to me like well especially my teammates you know especially the ones I used to hang around with after football they'd be like I don't understand how you're drinking the way you are and then performing the way you are and coming in and doing this they just like they were absolutely flabbergasted by how I could do it so I had probably had a skill to to do that or I was just kind of like a place where I was okay and it, it was just it is what it is but I think eventually if I carried on in the professional game it would have caught up with me as in like you know the recovery your body is obviously going to break down or whatever mm. you can't go throughout life drinking the way I was drinking and then be expecting to perform on a, on a high level it's just it's just not possible but mm. I did ultimately I don't think my my performances um deteriorated from from when I was drinking and maybe the recovery time and who knows I would have I probably would have been, could have been better of course but mm. You know, at times I just felt like fucking hell. I'm pl- I'm training and playing better when I'm drinking, so I should just keep drinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's strange. I suppose, I suppose the teammates kind of um, being shocked about it and mentioning it kind of would would boost that that feeling of like, oh, maybe I can just get away with it. Um, it's, yeah, it's interesting. With in regard in regards to with football, then because you were saying how you know the near the end of your career you fell out of love with it. And obviously when you were, when you were younger, you were not maybe forced, I don't know is the word, but you, you know, you were kind of pressured into playing it. How, how did you perceive football through your career? Like did, was there a stage where you in, you in, were loving it or like, was there a, you know, how did it feel to you? Like, what did it feel like? Was it a, was it something like, was a passion or was it something that you felt you needed to do? Um. I always wanted to be a footballer as well from a young age that I was always walking around, always kicking a ball in the street and I was always practicing. So I wanted just as much as anyone else. Um, You know, I was always practicing. I was always putting in the hard work and my dad, obviously I had that help where he was guiding me to, 
to practice because he would always say, look, if you're going to be good in anything, you need to practice because, you know, you have to practice to be better, as simple as that. So from that point of view, I think I really, really enjoyed the academy side of things. And then looking back, it was a huge amount of pressure, but I knew I was performing at such a level. And I felt like I was better than the other players we had. Um, and I got offered a professional contract when I was 14. Man United wanted to sign me when I was 13, 14 from there. And I decided to stay at Bristol. They then gave me a professional contract, you know, earn money, et cetera, when I was 16. So, and then I was pretty much in the first team. So from that point, I really, really enjoyed it. I think when I went to Wigan, um, I felt like I got a good money move, which was back then was a decent amount of money for a player of my age. And I just felt like I didn't really have them that right support system around me. I think, you know, I was with someone who turned out that wasn't great for me. Um, The agency side of things were kind of like, right, you've had your move and didn't support me in the right way there. There was one guy who, Silver Regis, who was amazing with me. He's, he was obviously great. um, But the other part of the agency were not so. And, and I was in a, you know, I was, I've I've gone from playing with league, playing in league once, then playing with Premier League players. Mm. And I, and I was with a manager who was, you know, quite tough in that sense. It wouldn't be like managers many around like him these days. And I felt like I just didn't have the right support and I felt like quite alone. And then when I wasn't then playing the team, it was kind of like, fuck, what do I do? What do I do? And it's just mm. like, that's just the way it was. I had like, obviously my most important people, two influential people away from me, which were my parents. So they were nowhere to be seen because they were so far, far away and blah, blah, blah. So it was quite tough, um, especially at that young age because, you know, I look at my son now and he's 13. And I think, well, at the age of in four years time, I would have been playing in the Premier League or in like three years time, mm-hmm. I was playing professional football. And he's so far away from that. So sometimes I, I think I would forget at that time, wow, I was actually really, really young. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in shitloads of money for that age. I didn't have a care in the world. But the biggest thing that I had was what was going on in my mind and the pressures that I used to put on myself were crazy. Mm-hmm. Did the um, did the self harming last? Like with the you know you bashing them on your studs, your studs on your calves and stuff. Did that did that last like during your into your professional career? No, I actually then went into um, well, I then actually went into smashing up my house quite a lot. So I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I'd go out drinking, come home, smash my house up, buy new furniture, left, right, and center all the time, or. When I was, especially in my drinking days, you know, I'd have blackouts, but then I'd wake up with like knives next to me where I've tried to like put them into me or something mm. along those lines. And and I was obsessed with the equalizer, the movie. So I had like a, a corkscrew above my throat here. And it's kind of like, I was just, I was done to be quite honest. I was really in a dark place. I was like not in a good place at all in the sense of like my mental health. I was unhappy away from the pitch. I was unhappy when I was at the football, um, football, stadiums or well training ground I, I wouldn't say stadiums because that's the only time that I felt free was when I was playing on a Saturday so when that football was taken away from me from my release that's when I was kind of like really really deteriorated because I didn't have no outlet then mm-hmm. I didn't have nowhere to go so yeah did football feel like it was it was your dependency like it was almost like the like you know like a form of alcohol or like a drug that you're playing on that Saturday gave you the confidence or made you feel kind of worthy or what, what do you think it was that, that football did for you? I think in the end, it was just kind of like with the, with the politics that were, were there, 
um, at the football club that I was at, it's kind of, it wasn't good for me really mentally because you wanted to play and you knew you were good enough to play, but then you have other people's taking that table, taking that away from you. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like people knew, you know, they would say to you, oh, you, you love a night out or you love this, you love that. And I'd have physios taking me out of training because they could smell alcohol on me. But it was never, ever a conversation to say, look, I think you need our help or can we help you in some sort of way with drinking mm-hmm. blah, blah blah it was never about that it was always about don't let the manager see you get ready because you need to train and get ready because you're a big player and part of our you're one of our main players here you need to get ready for the next game so it was never about me as an individual and how they I could get helped mm. often in the kind of <clears throat> in the scientific research around things like compulsive exercise and those those kind of issues that come come with that often there's a um the, the the idea of guilt is one of the kind of things that has the strongest relationship where if someone feels guilty if they don't do they play football or don't do something that tends to spike the kind of you know anxious symptoms and the the compulsive exercise and disordered eating sometimes those kind of symptoms um do you think do you think that guilt that people were putting on for you to be like, Oh, why, like, why do you, why are you acting like this? Like you need, you're our best player. You're a good player. You, we need you. Do you feel like there was some guilt there that may, may have driven that? Um, I don't know. I think, I think I'd like to have thought that part of the physios kind of, um, you know, wanted me to do well, but I, mm. I don't know. You never know in that in football environment because you're on like a conveyor belt where, you know, if you're not going to be good enough, the next guy's going to be good enough. And if yeah. he's not going to be good enough, then you have the youngsters coming through constantly. So it's always about that. Um, and yeah, like I, like I said to you before, like the, the pressure that I used to put on myself anyway is not going to be no bigger than anyone else. Yeah. So I was always kind of like that way. And, um, and when I was drinking... Look, I never felt guilty about drinking and then playing or anything like that. I only mm. drank once before a game. Um, other than that, it was kind of almost every day or binge drinking. And I was just like, I was just totally out of control. When I started drinking, I was just fucking totally out of control. And so when you um because you haven't drank now for how how long has it been since you haven't since you've last drank? Twenty months. Twenty months, yeah. So when when did that kind of yeah you know come like how did that come about like where did what what did you progress into like how did you you know coming out of football and then you know how did that how did that come to be so when when i first retired i was i was having the conversations already with my ex um wife and she was kind of like saying look you need help the way you're drinking is not normal the way you are you just like really really need help we need to get you help um and she could obviously see that because she was living with me constantly Mm. you know that's what I hate about when I first started speaking about my mental health, a lot of people say, well, we didn't know you were going through that or you always seemed happy to us. or you sent seemed this blah, blah, blah. But yeah, because I allowed you to see that. Yeah. That, that was, that was the yeah. mask that I was wearing for you to see that kind of thing. When I go home, I'm in a, I'm in a, in a pickle. So it's kind of like when I always think, or I always describe is that, you know, with footballers or sports stars, it's kind of like, well, he shouldn't feel that way because he's earning shit loads of money and he's this and he's that. Whereas like when Robin Williams obviously took his own life, mm. which is the biggest um, probably example that could be out there. You've got one of the funniest guys who's ever been on the planet. who's then suffering with his own mental health, but he's mm. making other people laugh. But then in deep down inside, he's not in a good place. Mm. But 
you know that those comparisons don't go the same if that makes sense because mm. it's kind of like well oh, he was he was he was amazing which he was i'm not taking anything away from him because he's one of my favorite guys mm. so he's he's amazing and he isn't it sad what he went through whereas like a footballer is kind of like well he shouldn't feel that way because he earns x amount of money mm. and he's living it- every boy's dream and it's, it's really weird about the comparisons that's really interesting isn't it it's weird that we we put footballers apart. Do you think? I think it's because of the the way media kind Always. of portrays footballers. Yeah, I th- I think so. Well, you look at the you look at the start of the pandemic. Everyone's like, well, why are footballers not um, donating some money, mm. or why are footballers not doing this and doing that? Well, it's not the football footballers' fault that we just went into a pandemic. But it seems to always be the conversation. Like when you look at the you know, the MPs and stuff like that, where they, the footballers in the background were working on something to give money, but the MPs look like they did something right because they then called them out. But it's madness. What about the MPs should be taking certain things of mm. like pay cuts or whatever? Why does it always have to be footballers? But anyway, the answer do you think, do you think it, do you, just now. Sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm interested. Do you think, because it's, it's interesting because there's not many other sports where the player's wage is so kind of, often just flaunted like whenever a player signs a new contract for a team it's not like oh this player is signed for this team this is going to be really good usually it's they've signed for this team and they're earning 100 grand a week and like it's, it's always it's always with the money involved like it's always like the the forefront of the deal is like how much money are they getting rather than like you know what they're going to be doing with the club and stuff i feel like the first thing you see is always this it's a contract for this amount of money like I, do you think yeah, that could I be think, playing for- yeah, I think so. I think I think so. I think with like the footballers, I think because there's so many footballers who get the moves and they make the papers and blah blah blah. But even if you look at celebrities, though, really, when they sign a a lucrative deal, where a lucrative deal, where um, you know, for example, I don't know, people on like ITV or whatever they might be, they're like, well, they've signed a three year contract, they're earning X amount of money. It's pretty much the same for celebrities as mm. well. It's kind of like that's their contract. That's how much money they earn, and it's just it's just madness. But um, that's just the way it is, I suppose. I think when they, you know, they're, they're in the limelight and that's obviously part of part of the job that you come with. And I was, I was watching a documentary, um, The Last Dance. I don't know if you've seen it, the one with Michael Jordan and yes. the Chicago yeah. Bulls. Yeah. And, and um, Dennis Rodman says something on there, which kind of like struck some of me where he was like something along the lines of, well, I get paid millions of dollars, but, 20% is, of that is for my salary and then 80% of it is the other bullshit that I have to deal with outside the court. Mm. And he's so right. It's kind of like, so say, for example, you're a footballer and you're in £100,000 a week. Yes, you have a, a talent that has got you there, but you're kind of like earning probably 30, 40 grand a week of talent. And then the rest of it is to put up with the bullshit that you deal with on a day-to-day basis because a normal normal person can't deal with that because of the pressures. Mm. And it is, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does, yeah. And I, I remember, I remember Dennis Rodman saying that in the documentary. And it's, yeah, I th- it's really. I think it's really hard for people because because we see the the media shows all the, the crazy things footballers are doing, and we see all the you know, and we also we see all the bad stuff. Like it's rare that you the the good things people do are, are shown as as often as the bad things. Like if, if a footballer drives a car or like like breaks something or like you know does something stupid on holiday, that's in. Every, that's everywhere and it's spoken about on every tv show because it's dramatic um whereas you know if a footballer does something good they maybe mention it in the newspaper and then people go oh isn't he lovely and then we carry on and we just don't give a it's just, I, I think it's just kind of like the uk mentality where you know if, 
the amount of times that I've heard this said, it's like, if you've got a Ferrari coming down the road, every, a lot of people, a high percentage of people go, look at that flashy bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, well, you don't know what he's done to get, get there. You don't know how he's worked or how many hours mm. he's put into making sure that he was a success. But like people always assume like, what he's so flashy. Why is he flashy? Just because he's got a nice car. Mm. It's no, just crazy. But yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, the, I think every if we if we all worked that hard and got to that amount of money, I think I don't think there's many people who wouldn't get like a flashy car. Or yeah, get exactly. Like, but it's just I think part of it is you know either resentment or a bit of jealousy or whatever it is, and it drives that that um, opinion. But also you know the the like we said talking about the media just kind of portrays people with money as the enemy, and you know it, it, they they've just gotten lucky, and like you know you have to feel bad about them because of you know there's all these different pressures on people to make them think these things um but yeah it's 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 difficult for footballers and i know i imagine there'll be people listening to this who'll be thinking oh this poor footballers are earning all that money and you know even when we're talking about it like this but you know it they are it's really important to remember that you know all all professional athletes are were just they were just a, a boy playing in the street at one stage and like they are just a they are just a human being they're exactly the same as other people they just they're just put into this huge tunnel of pressure and people people just being it's okay to give a football a shit like it's not where like if you if you shouted abuse at some randomer in the street you'd be like what are you doing but if you shout abuse at a footballer it's like it's encouraged people love it do you know what i think yeah i think with especially inside the stadiums i think that just creates a little bit of the atmosphere you don't want that atmosphere to go Mm. um but it's just kind of like you know, the out the pressure's off out of there. Whereas like when I used to, I think I lost a we lost a football match once and I took my kids to for food. We went to like Nando's or wherever it was. And I had one guy come up to me saying, You you're a disgrace, you shouldn't be out because we lost yesterday. And I was like, Well Yeah. Fuck off. I'm just with my family having food. What's it got to do with you, basically? Yeah. Um so but I just said to him, Well, what do you do for work? And he said, Oh, I'm a postman. I said, oh, well, if you don't deliver your letters to the right door, does that mean you're not allowed out with your family? And he said, oh, what do you mean? I said, well, you're doing your job and I'm doing my job. No one wants to like yeah. mess up or they, they want to lose a letter. They don't want to lose a game. It's just the way it is. It happened. I'm now mm. my family and don't ever fucking come up to me when I'm with my family again. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and rightly, because like you're saying, you know, it is at the end of the day, it's your job. And, and you know, I keep saying this, but you are a human being. As every football player is a human being. I don't care if you're Lionel Messi, you know, you're going to, you cock up sometimes. Yeah. Even even the best players to ever exist have cocked up and, like, you know, lost control of the course. ball or whatever. It's, you're with people. Like, we're all, every, no one, no one listening to this podcast or any, any of the people giving football a shit has had a completely perfect life and they've never <laughs> fucked up. Um, so no, why do we course. expect why do we expect the players to to not be like that? Um, I'm interested because you're you've recently started playing for is it Barrytown United or Barrytown? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Like how you got into that and like how that how that's kind of you know is it helping your mental health at the moment? Um, well, I I was hitting the gym. I was going to this one gym for a little while, and the manager of there was um bumping into me quite regular and he was so i had my it was quite weird i had my shirt off in the change rooms and he was just like you're looking in good shape considering you retire because he was like you know most footballers who retire put their feet up and literally just yeah. like get a little eat what they want and just don't bother exercising basically is what he was getting at 
and I was just like, look, I just do more for my for mental side of things, really. If I don't train, then my head will be, you know, in a pickle. Mm. And um, and he's like, oh, you should, you know, if you fancy it, come down, take a little look, have a little train with us. My cousin obviously plays with the team. I knew, knew like a few of the boys, only about three or four of them. Um, and so he'd, he'd, I said no for ages. I literally said no for about eight, nine months. <laughs> and then I seen him again. I thought, and I spoke to my cousin and I was like, you know, what's it like there? And he's like, look, just come and have a little train. So I went for it. So I decided, um, I had a little thought about it, spoke to the manager and I said, look, I'm not going to come down and, and train to see how I enjoy it. I'm either all out attack or, or I'm not. I'm just one of these people anyway. I'm either in or I'm not. So he said, look, all right, let's sign a year's contract, see how it goes. And, and that's what we did. We had obviously a tough start because I didn't play for two years. Um, and then we were, I played a couple of games. Then we pretty much went into COVID. So it's kind of like a stop start. And yeah, I enjoy, I, I think I've, I've missed the competitive edge more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I've missed that. I've missed that winning feeling. I, I know that. I've, and even from like the first session, like the manager said it a few times, he goes, I never knew how competitive you were. Or, mm. and, and then that's when he, that's when he, you know, he'd say, well, that's what's, why these boys are kind of like here and you obviously made it where you are because you're really, really competitive and you expect things, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and that's where I was. I, I've really, I've, I've enjoyed it. There's a, there's a great, great bunch of lads there. They want to do well. Um, I kind of like helping the younger guys come through as well. I think, mm-hmm. I think now that they, a lot of people feel that they can speak to me about mental health. So I'm not just there just to be kind of like a teammate. They know that if they get, if they're feeling a little below, they can speak to me about certain things. So I kind of like that side of it as well. Do you think that's something, um, I don't know, maybe they are, I know there's sports psychologists and stuff, but do you think that's something that football teams should incorporate more, some kind of like mental health advisor or something like that into their teams? Yeah, I think, in fact, I think every um, profession out there, every environment should have someone to help with mental health. Mm. I think the problem is nowadays is that there's a lot of tick box exercises out there. A lot of football clubs out there think that they're helping with mental health when they actually don't know they don't. And they're not, mm-hmm. they don't know, like players don't know who to turn to. You know, I had, I have regular um, uh, ex players or, or, or players who are still playing now where they'll message me or ring me and they'll say, well, where can I turn if I'm struggling? So you have organizations um, in the football world who are supposed to be looking after these situations and the players don't even know where to turn themselves. Yeah. So then you then go to the football clubs. You, you know, I've spoken to a lot of football clubs where I've got obviously online um, mental health courses, which will support trauma, anxiety, depression, all the and goal settings and hypnotherapy and all this sort of stuff is on there. And you go to football clubs and they love the idea of, of what I'm doing and me and my partner, what we're doing, but they don't do it. They don't then, do it then they think that they can go off and do it as what they want and it's not really i gotta be honest it's not the number one thing for them they're more Mm. interested in other things uh, and then they're gonna have a problem because players are not going to support that they they need and they want Mm. i I suppose it's 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 kind of the you know i don't want to put a a label on it but i suppose it's just the money game isn't it you know putting money into an athlete's mental health you know they haven't done it for so long and it's been you know as far as they're concerned working out fine like you know they're still making money and and doing stuff so i suppose it's why why would they do it um but you know like you're saying if we 
if we implement mental health advice and help and even just signposting, they're going to improve the, the lives of so many athletes in, in all sports. You know, if all sports just incorporate that, even just, ha- just having that signpost to a, to a charity or to, you know, someone like yourself or the organizations that you, the things that you run, you know, that, that'll help so many people. And it's such an easy thing to, to implement. And it's, it's strange to me that, that that isn't like, it. I feel like that should just be a, a very easy switch to to make yeah i think a lot of like those organizations it's not what you know it's who you know so if obviously one of those Mm -hmm. guys who were in there already come up with the idea they'd probably be able to you know get a shitload of courses out there but because Mm -hmm. they're not um maybe because i'm like on the outside of of coming in that's just the way it is and mm-hmm. hopefully it can change for the footballers and in fact not just footballers just everyone else out there I think because of the charity that I, I run as well I've seen a really you know people deteriorate a lot since Covid and there's no support out there there's really not so thank you so much for being on um I feel like we spoke about some really interesting stuff and thank you for opening up. Um, Just to kind of finish off, I want to ask you three questions. I'm starting to do these kind of three questions at the end for every guest. So we'll go through them. So the first one is um, one person, whether they're real or fictional, that has inspired you in your life. Probably Michael Jordan. Yeah, great answer. Great answer. What a man. Probably the most competitive <laughs> man to ever exist from the judging from the documentary. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> um <clears throat> question two. This is a this might be a tough one. Um a moment in your life that you didn't like at the time, but now looking back, know that a lot of positives came from it, or at least some positive came from it. Probably going to rehab for sure. Mm, yeah. I, I I didn't want to go to rehab, couldn't think of anything fucking worse than going there um but i'm barriers to basically be where i am now mm. um so if i didn't make that step then i wouldn't have obviously been you know sober for 20 months and and been at the place where i am now yeah well that's a really brave step to take like you say because it's quite scary the idea of doing it and like and you also just don't want to do it like i can imagine how how hard oh yeah like is everyone step most people who hear about, oh my God, he's been to rehab. They always think that, oh my God, you've literally lost everything. You've mm. hit rock bottom. You've done this and done that. And yes, I did hit rock bottom for my rock bottom because I wanted to change. And I think if people don't hit their own rock bottom, especially with addiction, then if they don't want it for themselves, they won't change. So people yeah. can keep telling them as much as they want, but if they don't want to change themselves, they won't. Yeah. Well, the, the, we had an interview. I didn't interview a guy called Mike Dayum who um, wrote a book about kind of suicidal thoughts and like his, his journey with, with suicide. And he was talking about rock bottom and he said how, you know, rock bottom isn't actually a thing. It's just, it's the point where you decided to change your life and do something else. Yeah. You, know, you just, you was the bottom for you, but you have to, you have to make that choice to get better. That's when you've reached your rock bottom. So he says, if anything, rock bottom is a good thing to get to because then, you know, you're just going up. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a, it's a good way to look at it because I think, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, how do I know when I've hit rock bottom or what was rock bottom like? Well, it's hard for me. To, my rock bottom would be totally different to yours and mm. then vice versa as well. So everyone's everyone's individual. Everyone's like different. So you might be able to deal with a lot more bullshit than me than compared to my rock bottom. So it might take you longer to get there, but eventually then you hit your rock bottom, then you can start to, to you know, go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and final question, a phrase to live by. 
phrase to live by. I think that um, I always go off basically that I can't, I can't change the past. I can only deal with what I can now. Mm. Um, so I can only do what I'm doing today. I can't really change the future because we're not there with the future yet. I can't change the past because that's gone. So mm. I literally just focus for now. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, I don't, don't be a prisoner to your past. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great one. Yeah, living living in the moment and and you know doing doing dealing with dealing with what you can now rather than being obsessed with what's going to happen or what has happened. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, just to kind of give you an opportunity at the end here. Um, can you let people know where they can find you? So whether like social media tags, websites, etc. I will link it all in the description, but just so you have a chance to speak about it. Yeah, so probably the main thing that I, it's not really about me, um, my personal one, but the Crystal Matrix um, on Instagram, and it's obviously on online as well. So I think probably that because it's more, it's mental health support. Um, so it's about mental resilience. That's what we're trying to gain. We're trying to like look after people. We're trying to give them support. And it's not just for adults as well. So if anyone's got children who's going to be watching this, there's, there's things about for um, six to 11 year olds and also from 11 to 16 year olds as well. So it's kind of like we're being proactive with the younger ones, not just being reactive, of, uh, reactive for like adults when you, mm-hmm. you have mental health problems. Um, and then obviously I'm on Instagram, David Cottrell 11. And on Twitter, I'm, Cottrell underscore David 11 I think it is yeah it'll be it'll be in the description anyway so don't worry yeah um, <laughs> you can tag him out there <laughs> um thank you again for being on um thank you everybody for listening and I hope you all come back for the next one bye thank you so much for listening to that episode here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out mayaminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.